When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Welcome, fight fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast Career Profiles with me, your host, Sean Bastow, shortly to be joined by Johnston Brown. And this episode has been voted for by the users of Twitter in the polls that were put out quite recently to determine who their greatest lightweight was. And the winner of that overall poll was Roberto Duran. But before we get into the career profile of Roberto Duran, I want you guys to go and follow us on social media, on Twitter at BTR Boxing Pod and Facebook at BTR Boxing Podcast. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM and even Spotify as well. So, as voted for by you, the listeners and the users of Twitter and Facebook, this is the career profile of the greatest lightweight, Roberto Duran. If you walked into the ring or met him in a dark alley, would you be afraid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so would I. The guide in the difficult years, they had Roberto Duran to represent them and save them and give them pride. So he was, and still is, he's the most famous Panamanian today. He can do whatever he wants in Panama. He can get away with anything. This is it then, Johnston. This has been voted for by the users of Twitter's and BTR Boxing Podcast. This is the career profile of Roberto Duran. And it was voted for in a series of polls which was put out across social media on Twitter about who the best lightweight is. And you, as the listener, had the opportunity to do that and voted for it on Twitter. So there was that many lightweights that came up that we were speaking about off the air where we were thinking, well... You know, we could just easily say Duran, but then let's give people the opportunity to actually say what they think and vote for it. So we had two 
polls that were running simultaneously. We had Benny Leonard, Pinel Whitaker, Ike Williams and Freddie Welsh in one. And then we had Duran, Joe Gans, Tony Canzarini and Carlos Ortiz in the second one. Duran and Pinel Whitaker both overwhelmingly won that. So we did one more poll just to see who would ultimately win the career profiles poll at the lightweight division. And people voted for Roberto Duran. So we like to think we've considered the best lightweights that they have been over the course of time. And Roberto Duran comes out on top. Yep, yeah, and, and uh, I I agree with, with those that voted. I think uh, Roberto Duran is the best lightweight ever for me. Um, I think Penel Whitaker in there, I don't disrespect. I think I think he wouldn't be in my top two, but he would be definitely my top five. I do think Benny Leonard's probably the guy that was probably pushed Duran. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Duran is the best lightweight, and I think overwhelmingly so. And I... You know, he was just a, an absolute a great fighter uh, throughout his 119 professional fights, spanning over five decades. I mean, the guy is an absolute legend. He's become a legend, uh, winning, what, four titles in four different weight categories. And, you know, it's just a pleasure to be able to dig through the archives of Roberto Duran. Uh, saying that, we've probably done it ourselves already, Sean. I know I have, probably a few years ago and probably years before that. But um, it's nice to go back and look at Roberto Duran and, obviously do this career profiles. It certainly is. I'm really looking forward to going through this one with you and, and obviously breaking down some of the most notable moments of his career. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go through every single one of his fights. Uh, and there were quite a lot of them. There were 119 in total. So we're going to be here for four or five hours trying to go through that. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go through the most notable ones of his career, of course. And, you know, the most notable fights, the most notable wins, most notable losses, everything that's really caught the attention of the wide the boxing audience so really excited to to talk through some of them moments in his career but of course it's a career profile and we're going to be starting from the beginning where it all started from him born june the 16th 1951 in panama in a period of time which was very difficult for the panamanian people of course and it's well documented uh the upbringing duran had and if you've any of you have listened uh, or seen any of the literature that's out there or any of the films that have been made the the hands of stone that was done in 2016 and then most recently the i am duran film uh, are great watches for boxing fans and i implore you to go and watch them but everything started out for him in the slums of panama it did Jay. i mean he was born into poverty um he didn't go to school um or he did he did go to school we ended up getting kicked out for fighting there was a the story apparently he sort of punched one of the kids down the stairs. Um, not quite true, sort of. I'm not quite sure how true that is, but um, in the end he got suspended. So he ended up becoming like the main breadwinner for his family at the age of like, geez, like five, six, seven. I mean, he was out there shining shoes and uh, selling newspapers. I think he earned a bit, a bit of a, quite a few dollars from selling newspapers. But you know, he was out just trying to earn some money. I mean. The other, the other thing was he was he, he was to still through. He used to sort of um, there was uh, the, the the Panama Canal, so there was there was an area. Um, I'm not too familiar with it, but there was an area that was run by the Americans that was actually quite wealthy. Um, and you know he'd sneak over the fence and he'd steal the mangoes, and then he would try and I think he had to swim as well. So he had to swim quite far to get into the place because it was a canal, obviously. So he'd steal the mangoes, get them in some sort of bag and then he'd swim sort of swim back in hope that he wouldn't bump into any of the older kids because the older kids would sort of nick the mangoes off him and then he would sell them or he'd eat, he'd eat for himself and his family so you know he was out from a very very young age just earning 
a crust, really, adding just a few dollars here and there to support his family. Um, so, yeah, a very, very difficult upbringing for Duran. Um, and, you know, no, no doubt he ended up the person he was because he was, uh, you know, he's a warrior, really. He was a fighter, and I think, I think that shone through in the ring. It certainly did. And as we go through the early years of, of Roberto Duran's life, you're talking about him going and getting involved in the sport of boxing. And, and something that when I was doing the, the research for this episode, and, and obviously having watched the Hands of Stone film, the portrayal of, of how he ended up in a boxing gym was, was quite amazing. He was obviously portrayed as quite a cheeky chappy, as, as what's known here in the UK. You know, a guy that... Uh, happy-go-lucky is another way of... of of probably saying it, you know, the guy was cheeky. The guy would would, would kind of lie, cheat, and steal to get his way through through early years of life, and understandably so, given what he had to grow up in, of course. But it was quite, uh, you know, harrowing also to see the life that he had to deal with at such a young age, and and you know how when you look at what he's done in his career and what sort of life he's provided for himself over the years is is actually quite quite a rags to riches story and when it all began for him it all began with him actually going in the gym and sparring with experienced boxers at the only <laughs> under the age of eight which i found quite unbelievable now i know obviously you know at the age of eight you go into a gym and you, you know you're training with the kids and you, you're not really sort of you're not really sort of getting any sort of form to what you're doing you're just learning you're just you know you're having a little bit of fun but you're learning at the same time and this was a real hardcore Panamanian gym and he was eight years old and he was sparring with experienced boxers that were a lot older than him. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, he did tell the story in his book as well, sort of mentioned uh, his brother, his older brother, Totty. He was the one that actually got him into boxing um, and he went to a gym called uh, Nicode La Guadera. Um, my pronunciation is probably well off there, but it was a gym in, obviously in Panama, sort of, it was, it was two gyms. There was one gym one side of the canal and then another gym the other side. So he started off on this one particular side with his brother and he said that he was just spellbound by the way when his brother sort of... He, he told him to wait there. He said, come to the gym. He said, he went to the gym. He just said, just sort of sit there, wait there while I just get myself changed. And he came out and he said he was actually spellbound with how he come out with his boxing gloves and his shorts and, and his and his shoes, and he just wanted to just do that. He said, from that point, I was like, I want to be a boxer. And he's like, what do I need to do to be a, become a boxer? And and he just said, just keep coming to the gym. And that's what he did every single day after seeing his brother. Um, and, and he was just, uh, as I say, he was just spellbound by it. And and he, as you say, he was only little. They, they, they were saying he was too short and he was too light. They called him uh, Little Paleo, uh, they called him. Um, and then, um, so one day, basically what happened was, was while he was sort of sparring, as you say, with, with fighters, and his his brother was he went to weigh him with his brother Totty, and um, the the other I'm not I'm guessing it wasn't Totty's opponent because he didn't fight Totty, so it was sort of on the card, and this one chap was a 105 pounder, and he didn't show up, so he threw his name into the mix at 13 years old, um, and they sort of said oh, I don't know, you know, he weighed 84 pounds, they jumped on the weighing scales, they put a rocket in each po- a rock in each pocket. And he weighed exactly 100 pounds. And that was how he fought his very first fight as an amateur, as a 13-year-old boy. And he got beat. He did get beat. But, you know, he said it was a bit corrupt and that the judges were, were cousins of the, the guy that he felt he beat. But he lost on points. He got $3 for it. So he had $1 he gave to his trainer, $1.5 he gave to his mum, and then $0.50 cents 
for himself where he took himself off to the pictures because he was a massive fan of any sort of film. Any time he ever had any spare money, he'd go to the pictures. So that was what he did, his very first amateur fight. And, and it continued all the way up until sort of his 12, 13, 14, sort of into his teens. So his amateur career, he, he's actually a really small amateur career, but then obviously when you look at the, the amount of fights he had over the years, 119 is, is, is amazing, <laughs> really, professional fights. He actually only fought 16 times as an amateur, uh, winning 13, losing three, and then decided to turn professional in 1968 at the age of 16. And The age of 16 is something that in that area of the world seems to happen quite a lot. I know in Mexico, you know, Canelo Alvarez turned professional at the age of 15 and by the time he's like 20, 21, he'd already competed in like 25 to 30 professional bouts, which is quite unheard of in, you know, in this day and age. But this was 1968. Again, complete different period of time and and culture and nationalism that was going on at the time. And he made the decision to turn professional and obviously a lot of it was down to the fact that he was he was a fantastic little amateur fighter at the time but it was also the fact that you know to get himself out of poverty the only way to do that was to actually fight his way out of poverty so he made that decision turn professional in 1968 and you know i can't imagine many people turning professional in 2019 at the age of 16 and, and and sort of starting out the way he started out his career obviously in Panama he actually fought quite a lot of times for the age of 16 I mean I know amateurs fight week in week out this is what this is the way the game works now or the sport works they, they fight week in week out constantly but it's professionals different it's a different side of the sport completely from for him to be fighting you know practically every month or Every other month throughout 1968 for me was, was again was quite unbelievable. And I knew obviously he had a very long, storied professional career. But when I really sat down to break things down in my mind and 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 for the research for the podcast, it was like actually wow, this guy has you know in the space of two years between 68 and 70, you know he, he's already amassing this record, which was fantastic and, and consisted of, of quite a lot of knockouts. Yeah, they were against a lot of novice pros and a couple of debutants in there as well. But to be able to go in there and do that at such an early age, between the ages of 16 and 18, for the first two years of his career, I found that quite compelling and quite humbling to look at. And for me, it was it, it started to tell me a bit of a story about his career because if you look at it from from a sort of casual point of view about Duran's career, you always think about the Ray Leonard fights and you always think about the, the, the marquee names in his career, but you, when you deep dive into his career, you don't really think about some of the, the, the notable names earlier on. But then for two years, again, you know, I was I was really sort of compelled and humbled to see that this guy had actually, you know, competed so many times at such a young age. And for, for me going forward, then it was about looking at what he was doing in the following years, from 1968 to 1974. Yeah, he was. I mean, he had nine fights in 1968, which is ridiculous, really, isn't it? I mean, when his first amateur fight as well against Mendez, he was actually a guy that actually went on to fight Ruben Oliveira. So, you know, although he was one low at the time when he fought him, I mean, that was, it just shows you, like, you know, he fought a guy that was no mug, and that was in his his uh, first ever appearance in 1968. And, and one thing he did say as well, it did make me laugh, is that he had steak and salad before that fight, and that was a tradition he and a ritual that he kept all the way throughout his whole career. So he always had a steak and salad before he actually went into a fight, and that was just from that moment, from 16 years of age, 
you know, weighing at 118 pounds. I mean, it is, it's, it's incredible, really, that, um, you know, at 16, he's, he's fighting these big men. And, and as, I mean, the one thing is, uh, his trainer, Palomo, is the guy that stuck with him throughout. And he was the one that asked him, he said to him, you know, after he got sort of, it was a bit of corruptness in terms of he was meant to go to Winnipeg in, uh, for the Pan American Games in 67, which it didn't happen because it was something to do with the, the police there. So um, Palomo's convinced him to turn pro and he just said to him, sort of, Duran asked him, how much am I going to get? And he said, $25. And then Duran's response was, who do I have to kill? <laughs> so, you know, $25 to Roberto Duran was a lot of money. But that's how much he earned for that first fight against Mendez. And as you say, he went on this incredible run where he just, I mean, he was knocking guys out for fun. Um, he had the, there was one fight he went the distance, um, which was against uh, Eduardo Frutos uh, in 1969. Other than that, in knocking them all out. Um, there was another quick thing um, in 1968 where, when he was 17 years old, he actually did go to prison for five days as well for punching the police officer. He uh, he did have he, he basically jumped into to uh, stop two men having a fight who he recognised, and um, this undercover cop tried to sort of jump in and. And stop it, or he grabbed him from behind, and basically Duran floored him. Um, he ended up in prison for five days, and you know, which is about right, and it with Duran. And uh, basically, he's, he's Carlos Aleta, who had actually just signed him for three hundred dollars as well from his first ever promoter. Um, so three hundred dollars, and that was a guy he actually stole coconuts from when he was a real young nipper, and he um, <laughs> so he stole coconuts from the fella, and then ends up he ends up being his promoter. So it's quite all ironic, but. Um, yeah, Carlos Elite didn't help him. He went in prison for five days and he said he thought he'd learn a lesson. So, yeah, it was it was a bit of a, you know, it was a difficult upbringing, up, upbringing for Duran anyway. And um, as I say, you know, he ended up going on this magnificent run all the way up to 1969 and he's literally just flooring people for fun. Um, and I suppose the only, the first name that he said was his first ever real hardest fight was an old Panamanian bantamweight champion, which was a guy called Luis, uh, Pantino who fought in 1969 um, he ended up getting rid of him in 8 but um, he did say that was definitely one of his hardest fights um, uh, before you know that is his most notable fight in a way that before he actually moved on and obviously went on to these fantastic things that he went on to achieve so let's fast forward just a little bit then and move towards the era of the lightweight division. And I think we'll fast forward to 1971. And at this point in 1971, he's starting to he's starting to be well known on the professional boxing scene. People are starting to recognise him. So much so that in September of 1971, he makes his debut in America in Madison Square Garden in New York. And he goes against Benny Haratas, knocking Benny Haratas out. But that was also significant start to his career because he actually was on the undercard of Ishmael Laguna versus Ken Buchanan. Ken Buchanan winning the WBA World Light Lightweight title that night, which would eventually, we'll go on to in a few moments, to talk about Duran versus Buchanan in Duran's first World Lightweight title bout. So that was significant. Now, I didn't realise, you know, that had happened. I'll be honest, you know, I didn't know. I knew a lot about Duran's career, but when you look back through the records and you look back at, you know, the way Duran had progressed throughout his career, he'd actually fought on the undercard at Madison Square Garden in 1971, which was obviously leading up to this particular fight with, with Ken Buchanan, which happened obviously a year later. So we'll fast forward to a year later, and obviously we get into the Ken Buchanan fight now, and at this point in time, he'd amassed a record of 29 wins with no losses, and including 25 by way of knockout. So, 
you know, this was a guy to be feared at this point in time. This was a guy that Ken Buchanan was going in there against and, and was certainly going to have a very, very difficult night. But much to Buchanan's credit in this particular fight, he certainly gave it his all. Ken Buchanan is, is known on these shows as one of the best lightweights to come off the, the this aisle, basically, off this island. Yet he, he was a Scottish lightweight champion. He was a fantastic lightweight. Brilliant. I don't think it really does him any justice especially when you've got someone like Roberto Duran and what he went on to do but in terms of UK fans and UK based listeners if you you know you'll know what Ken Buchanan achieved in his career and you'll know he's regarded as a Scottish legend and a legend that has come from this island essentially but Roberto Duran goes in there in the first significant fight of his career and it was a really, really tough fight for both men, but within 13 rounds, Roberto Duran stops Ken Buchanan. Ten seconds to go on the round. Buchanan went down after the bell, claiming a low blow. Buchanan went down after the bell, holding his groin. Dr. Edward Campbell of the commission has gone in. Now Buchanan is getting up and going to his corner. He is in severe pain. I'm going to try to get the referee, Johnny Lobianco. There was a flurry of punches at the bell, and all of a sudden, Buchanan just caved in and went down. Gil Clancy is talking to the referee, Johnny Lobianco. And let's see what's going to happen here. The referee may be stopping the fight. I don't know. The warning whistle has sounded around 14. It's a question of whether or not Buchanan will come out. The fight has been stopped, the fight has been stopped, and the winner, and new lightweight champion of the world, 21-year-old Roberto Duran of Panama. In in what was quite a strange ending to the fight, and a strange sort of set of circumstances as to how that fight ended up getting stopped. Yeah, it was. Um, was it below the belt? I mean, that was the big question, wasn't it? Was it a low blow? It to be honest, it does seem like it is. And I don't think Ken Buchanan is the type of guy to fake anything like that. And for me, it, it was a low blow. I mean, there was, afterwards, you know, there was mentions where I think the referee said that he could have stopped it and he could have actually, we were at the point of actually disqualified him. That was something that he later mentioned and then went back on his word and said, no, it wasn't below the belt. So, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't know. I, I think... He probably should have been given his chance to um, to recover and finish that fight because that's the only time Ken Buchanan was ever stopped in his whole career. Um, but let's you know, Duran was winning the fight; he was winning it comfortably, and he was he was he was terrific that night. His head movement—that's you know, one thing you always know. If anyone's never seen Duran, I'd be shocked if nobody has. But if nobody has seen Duran, his his head movement is is world class. I mean, it, if if anyone, I mean, even. Mike Tyson, I've heard Mike Tyson just sort of say how much he loved watching Duran and how much he learned from Duran and his head movement was just, how he could avoid a punch was just, it was it was remarkable really, how he could be that close to someone and be ducking and diving and, and still manage to land your shots and, and he was, this is, again, Ken Buchanan, he's, he beats the living shit out of him really, let's be honest, Ken does really well, I think he's still... He wears the scars today, and he does. He does joke. He says every time he does go for a, a slash, he always remembers. He always thinks of Duran because <laughs> of a <laughs> low blow. But um, yeah, I mean, end of the day, he was. You know, Ishmael Laguna received. He was the Panama man, wasn't he? He was the hero, and and Duran promised to gain revenge um, for for that 
for, for the Laguna defeat uh, for, for the Buchanan, beat, uh, Buchanan beating him twice. Um, and yeah, I mean, Duran said he trained as hard as ever. He trained for 25 rounds, he said. He sparred four and a half minutes per round as well. So this was the most sort of ferocious Duran you could probably ever meet because we all know that, you know, he was up and down with his weight throughout all of his career. But I suppose the one big thing with the Buchanan fight was the fact that he brought in Ray Arcel. Uh, if anyone didn't know Ray Arcel, he's an old trainer for, he had 20 world champions, uh, including Henry Armstrong, Benny, uh, Henry Armstrong, Benny Leonard, um, and, and Freddie Brown was the other guy, the cutsman of um, Rocky Marciano. And apparently Duran said, I, I will just finish with this, um, and he basically said that Duran was told the four basic fundamentals that basically Arcel and Freddie Brown wanted. And number one was, the left is more important, it is as important as the right. Number two is, Boxing is the art of hitting and not getting hurt. Three, it's not how hard you hit a man, but where you hit him. And four was the speed of which you cut up an opponent is directly related to how effectively you cut off the ring. So that were four things that he mentioned in his book. I thought that was quite interesting. I thought I'd share that with everyone. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. It's obviously, Ray, I think I think Ray Arcel is obviously someone who I think people that are historians of boxing will certainly be jumping, you know, from the seats when they hear about Ray Arcel and, and how much of a legend this guy was. It doesn't really, you know, I think we could probably sit and do a complete podcast on on the career profile of of, of Ray Arcel because you know there was some real notable moments in in his career and obviously the twenty world champions, the fact that he was quite old, obviously when he started training Roberto Duran and then obviously that was something that he didn't initially want to do and was even threatened of the fact that he shouldn't even be doing it but that is another story for another podcast of course so we move on then and obviously he gets victory over Ken Buchanan and probably at this point becomes the most famous man in Panama at this point and I think this is where the money early early on started to sort of get to Duran for me personally I mean the portrayal of this victory in in the film Hands of Stone sort of quite evidently points to the fact that you know Duran was a party animal and you know becoming you know the world champion and getting on top of the world was was a massive moment for him but it was also going to be his undoing at certain points of his career in his life as well and you know as he had two defences or two victories after the Buchanan fight he then was to go in uh, with a, another rival of his who would go on to be a rival of, of, of three fights over a five year period of time Esteban de Jesus uh, and that was an interesting one actually The before we talk about the de Jesus fight uh, he'd obviously become the most famous man at this point in time in Panama, but he was getting the victories. He decided that, you know, he had an, an upcoming fight, but typical Durani decided that he, <laughs> he was just going to go and do what the hell he wanted. He actually he was driving up a hillside in his homeland and he ended up coming going off-road from the hillside and it actually resulted in injuries sustained leading up to the fight. Well, they weren't se- severe, the you know they should have actually postponed the fight. I mean, in norm, under normal circumstances, you would have just said no. That's not going to happen. He actually ended up suffering lacerations to his lips that required stitches, as well as an elbow injury, which I thought was quite ridiculous to think that he'd actually ended up getting in the ring as well. And you know, it's typical of Duran. 
you know, he just shrugs things off and thinks, you know, just have a few drinks, I'll get over it, and I'll get on with this fight. <laughs> so two fights after beating <laughs> Ken Buchanan, he goes in there against Jesus and loses via unanimous decision uh, and gets floored in the opening round in what was uh, a compelling fight. The boys are about equal in height at five feet seven. Duran is wearing the uh, darker trunks if you're looking in black and white or the green and white trunks if you're looking in color. Deban de Jesus, the... Uh, Colored trunks, the blue and the white. Either boy could end this fight with one punch. Both have terrific records. And there is Duran down, believe it or not. And he is smiling, grimacing. The champion flat on his pants in round one. It really was, and it's a fight that's on YouTube as well. Um, Esteban Jesus is a fantastic fighter from Puerto Rico. Um, and he did, he put, he put him down with that left hook first round. Um, and... and you know, I think those around him in terms of Carlos Saleta and uh, Ray Arcel and, you know, probably um, Freddie Brown, um, their initial reaction is, you know, yes, there was a car accident, but it was more to do with that. <laughs> he was out on the piss all the time. Um, and that was, that's one thing you get with Duran. I mean, it was no money for Duran. you got to think this guy was poor and he's now getting all this money. You know, $25 was who do I kill? It always makes me laugh. Twenty-five dollars. He'd kill someone for twenty-five dollars because you know it's nothing. That's that's important to him. So him earning hundreds of thousands of dollars is like wow. So you know he was he was a new money man. So I'm not surprised he went out and enjoyed himself and he did. He liked to enjoy himself. And as you say, he had the accident and yeah, he got done. He probably should have been called off, um, but he didn't. He went and fought. He said he was overweight. You know the usual malarkey, which is that you hear throughout his whole career profiles. Is he was quite overweight. Um, and yeah, so Esteban got the victory, and it, it, it was a non-title fight. I think they both come in overweight, funny enough. Um, and then obviously went on to fight uh, back in Panama City after New York for the second time in New York. He fought, um, didn't go as quite as as to plan as, he, as it did against Ken Buchanan, and he was back against in Panama against Jimmy Robertson in front of eighteen thousand people, and uh, and he knocked him down in the fifth round and knocked him out. Basically, apparently knocked a couple of his teeth out in the process as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was just testament to to how hard of a hitter he was, and obviously you hear loads of different people talk about this, and it's probably the first time we've we've even mentioned this in the episode about the fact that his obviously nickname was Hands of Stone, and you know a lot of the people that you see in the documentaries, Ray Leonard in particular, said it was like having two rocks coming at you and hitting you in the face, <laughs> and that's that's what people would describe it as. But obviously he came back to Panama and obviously beat Jimmy Roberts and then went on his career and went back on a nice little run then from there on in throughout 1973 and bleeding into 1974 and 75. You know, he had some some great fights and then he got to the second part of his rivalry with Esteban de Hoos and got the WBA World Lightweight title again in the second fight, actually stopping Esteban in the second fight. And I think when we go a bit further into Duran's career, we'll talk about why we keep mentioning Esteban in this because the rivalry that these two guys had were, were was a rivalry that I do believe is underrated in Duran's career because of what he went on to do afterwards and the bigger names in the sport that he ended up facing but this is one particular rivalry which I felt like we should make, make sure we talk about in the episode in the career profile because I do believe it was a very significant rivalry in his career and that second matchup between the two in 19 
1974. You know, it, it, it stamped another definitive night in the career of Roberto Duran by picking up that victory back in Panama City and, and getting revenge, really. You know, he, he, he trained for this fight. He was in shape for this fight. You know, he was able to defend the title this night because of the fact that actually he'd come in on, on, you know, with the right way and he wasn't pissed and he'd not had any accidents. Exactly. <laughs> and he avenged that first defeat. The one thing that did go exactly the same way was that flipping first round. He got caught again with the left hook, put him down again in the first round. So he was like, uh, I, I don't, he even said himself, I, I still, to this day, you reckon if he walked out, he still get caught with that left hook. Twice he did with, with Esteban and uh, he got put down. I mean, he earned his biggest purse, 125,000. Uh, Jesus only got sort of 40. Uh, he put him down in the seventh. Lovely five-punch combo as well. I mean, his combination. Just watch the, the second fight. Just go to the seventh round. If you don't want to watch the fight. I mean, it's a great fight anyway. There's the second one. I think it's better than the first. And, and Duran, uh, this five-punch combo is ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I don't know how. Esteban gets up and then eventually finishes him off in the 11th with a lovely left hook to the head as well. Nice shot to the body. And I think it's the right. It's another three. It's a three-punch combo, but... And it is, and you're bang on, Sean. I think it's, it's a trilogy that people just seem to just ignore because of the stuff that obviously Roberto Duran went on to do beyond this point. But, you know, a magnificent trilogy. And obviously this is the second one as we, we move on. Yeah, we certainly will. And obviously, again, 1975, 1976 was more of the same. Carried on with great victories throughout his career. And I think without obviously going too deep diving into it into his career throughout 1975 and 1976 i think we need to sort of move on and then talk about the significant fights of his career really and and, and obviously how they all came about and and obviously how they all went down because as i said at the top of the show if we if we really wanted to sit down and break his career down in detail we're going to be here for hours on end and i don't think people want to sit here and listen to us for hours on end i think i think they want to hear what our our sort of summary of of duran's career is and i think that's why we should really sort of move on so between the sort of periods of of 75 going all the way up to the third fight with Esteban in 1978 was there any particular fights that you wanted to pick out that you felt were significant for Duran's career uh just just Ray Lankin uh is one he was 25 years old he's his sixth defense he had lost to Jesus twice uh, and Duran um you know Lankin fought quite smart actually it was, it was, I did I did catch a bit of it um, and I thought he fought, he fought a good fight. And, um, you know, it, in actual fact, what happened was he ended up in hospital for five days, Lampkin, for the knockout. And uh, Duran said after the fight, today I send him to hospital, next time I put him in the morgue. So, you know, that was the sort of, that was the sort of mindset Duran had. Uh, it's, it's awful to say because the guy's in hospital. I, don't, I really don't know too much what happened after his career. It did actually, after saying the comment, he began to see him in hospital because that's what Duran was like. You know, he had a persona in front of people. He'd make it out that he's... he's this macho macho when he was in the ring and, and his persona outside of it to the in front of the press. Um, in actual fact, he's actually quite a very nice fella. Um, and, you know, he said it and I think he probably felt quite bad when he visited him hospital. So, uh, yeah, um, so that was the only other, other than that, um, I don't, uh, there was another guy, Edwin Verut. He hated the guy, couldn't stand the fella. Um, just couldn't wait to beat the shit out of him. Um, he'd done 10 rounds of him and he was gutted he couldn't get rid of him. Um, and I believe it was on the undercard of Thriller in Manila. Although it was in America, I think they put it on earlier and then Thriller in Manila, in Manila happened after. That's what, I'm not quite sure how how that worked, but um, that was what he said. So I'm guessing it was. So yeah, he was on the undercard of that. Um, and 
Duran met Mohamed Ali before his fight with uh, Sal Mambi. No, I think I think again going back to to to, to the trilogy really in the final fight with Desus, I think that's the one that I think we need to discuss as well because at this point, obviously this is 1978 and, and both of them have actually got a claim to being the best lightweight in the world at this point because Desus has actually got the WBC title in the third outing, whereas Duran has obviously got the WBA title which he'd held on and off for obviously quite a number of years and this was to take place at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, it was a massive fight and probably the, the the, the most money-making fight of the trilogy, really, because of the significance of it. And obviously, this was in 1978, promoted by none other than Mr. Slippery himself, John King, <laughs> back to make another appearance, of course, on BTR Boxing Podcast. I think we're going to have to do a podcast on this guy alone, to be honest with you. He keeps coming up everywhere where we go. But <laughs> does, I, su- I suppose it's because, you know, he, you know, back in the day, he actually did put some decent cards on. You know, contrary to what we say about him, there were some great promotions that he actually put on over the years, and I'll, uh, I'll be looking forward to sitting down for that one. But this was significant. <laughs> this was very significant. The third disease fight. I think these guys shared a lot of time together in the ring, and this was significant for Duran because then he became, obviously, the undisputed champion of the lightweight division, picking up the WBC and WBA title by beating Esteban by TKO in the third and final outing of their career. And I think why it's so significant to me and why I really wanted to, to obviously pick this out was because of uh, the aftermath and the story of, of, of obviously the relationship between Desus and Duran. And, and I don't know if anybody, you know, that's listening knows the relationship. You know, you just think these guys went in there three times, a lot like, say, Fraser and Ali did and some of the other trilogies from over the years. But actually, you know, these two guys uh, shared a little bit more of an, uh, an emotional connection. And as Desus was was unfortunately dying due to contracting AIDS. Who was there? Roberto Duran went to go and see him at the end of his days, went to go and see Desus and, and shared that one last bit of respect between one another. And I just found the story of that quite, quite again, compelling and humbling. And whilst, you know, we talk about Duran sometimes in a negative light for, for the way he was inside and outside of the ring at times, you couldn't really deny the fact that the guy had total respect for people outside of the ring, contrary to what some of the stories tell us in history? Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, it, it's it's easy to, you know, on the outside of things, you, you'd think he's a bit of an ass, um and he can come across, say, some inappropriate stuff. Um, there's, an, there's a certain guy called Mike Tyson that actually looked up to Duran, um, and he, you know, we'll move on to the fight that he see, which was the Leonard fight, which he thought, I want to be like this man. So he was a massive influence on, on Tyson. But, you know, again, you know, Away from all that, you know, he was a caring guy. He was a family guy, believe it or not. I know he was out all the time, and he was out a lot drinking. Um, but he was actually quite, you know, he wasn't wasn't out partying, fighting people. He was he tended to just go out and be buying drinks for everyone. Everyone wanted to be around him because you know you're going to get a free drink, <laughs> probably a load of free drinks. To be honest with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first fight in terms of just Esteban Jesus, I mean, it's a great trilogy. The, the fight is brilliant. The third fight, again, what I loved about this fight from Duran is Duran didn't go in crazy like we see with Duran. He went, he boxed, he he fought a completely different fight to to a Duran I hadn't seen sort of previously. And in fact, probably the one time he boxed really, he'd become a bit of a boxer puncher because he knew that Esteban, if he connected with him in that first round again with the left hook, he's going to put it down. So he kept his distance and he boxed really well. You know, they were the first 
two Latins to headline in Vegas. This was the 12th and last defence of the lightweight WBA title for Duran. Um, he won the rubber match, um, and um, you know he had to, apparently had to shift 15 pounds in a month as well to come in below the, the, the weight limit. So struggling with his weight even to this day. Um, and in the weigh-in, uh, Dezus actually took a swing at Duran, and Duran tried to swing back at him. Uh, there was a certain Sugar Ray Leonard in the audience, um, and he said that that was the day that he said he can beat, he will beat Duran, and he can beat Duran. And um, yeah, so Duran just boxed really smart and. And he got rid of Jesus. Um, and, you know, the one thing he was he did do in the second fight, but I think he re- was really happy about it. The one thing he did say was he was walking around Vegas. I think it was Caesar's Palace Hotel. And he was walking about in no shoes or socks, just a pair of trousers and a, no top with a white white towel around him. And he said he literally walked around the whole, <laughs> the whole uh, hotel like that all night, just drinking um, and just enjoying himself. And he said he actually bumped into Jesus and said to him, come play some dominoes with me and he didn't show up. But, you know, end of the day, he did go and see him on his deathbed and they have this long history and, and Durand even said to him, um, you're on his deathbed in 1989, you're always going to be my great champ. So, they had a great sort of relationship between them even though they had this fantastic trilogy and, and it's one side of Durand that people probably don't realise that he is quite a caring fella. Yeah, I, I do agree with that, and I think um, I think when you look at deeper into into the man himself, I think you do realise that whilst he might come across as a, an arrogant prick at times, I think you've got to <laughs> you've got to realise that actually there were some things that he did outside of the ring in his career that he's always going to be commended for, and I think this is one of them stories, of course. So we're moving on in his career then now, and we're moving on to to 1980 now, and I think this is where we get to the most significant point of his career. I think the two fights with Sugar Ray Leonard for me were defining nights for him uh, legendary nights of course and, and the first fight being one of our legendary nights episodes so if you've not already listened to the sugar ray leonard and roberto duran brawl in montreal legendary nights episode it is there it is in the feed you can search for it go and give that one a listen that is a full breakdown of the build-up fight and aftermath between this particular fight so we're not going to go over that too much we'll skim over that and concentrate a little bit more on the second fight but obviously Obviously, that was the first time where Roberto Duran had gone in with another fantastic, talented class fighter in Sugar Ray Leonard and obviously beat Sugar Ray Leonard. And also significantly, this was obviously when he'd moved up as well. So he'd moved up at this point to the welterweight division. You know, we always talk about him struggling to make the weight. (laughs) He obviously needed to make that move up because he was struggling at lightweight. So he'd moved on from a legendary lightweight career at this point, obviously amassing some fantastic results along the way with a great trilogy with Esteban Dezus and then moves into his welterweight career, which is the second part of this four-part career of Roberto Duran's. And obviously the first significant fight there for me was Sugar Ray Leonard in Montreal in 1980. The two fights against Roberto Duran was night and day. Mm-hmm. Um, the first fight, I realized the significance of psychological warfare because he got, he got me upstairs. And physically, he uh, overwhelmed me. Um, I learned that it's just not physical, but it's also mental. And the first fight, I had lost so much of my composure going into the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally forgot about what I could do effectively against Roberto Duran. Mm-hmm. I should have been more of a boxer then. 
I tried to outslug him. I tried to out hustle him. I tried to out punch him, which was not smart by any means. Uh, Fifteen rounds of that pretty much taught me a major lesson that I got to think first too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you mentioned the weight, and I was I did actually write jot down his weight as he was going through his career, and just before that first fight in, in Montreal, he was like. One four two, one five one, one four seven, one four six, one four five. So, you know, where people were sort of saying, even without to what, I think his highest weight was one five one. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy because people actually turn around saying that he's going to struggle at welterweight. I think he was walking around probably as a middleweight. <laughs> to be honest, he, he had to burn off like twenty pounds in a month, which tends to happen, which is just crazy. So, yeah, obviously I mean, we've done a legendary night, and we, we did break down all the beforehand bit with the welterweight so you know skimming on obviously to he, he came back from that fight and he was an absolute hero you know and he he parted hard and we, we just we we, we, meant, we mentioned that on legendary nights as well and he really did party hard and so hard that he was well overweight and he had again i think he had one month to strip off i think he i think he actually said he was i think it was like 50 pounds or something ridiculous like that. 40 or 50 pounds he had to get rid of in a month and you know clearly going to be struggling and Sugar Ray Leonard jumped on it and he, he done the right thing Carlos Aleta told him he's going to be fighting um, and you know this is it so Duran went in he said he didn't feel good throughout that whole month trying to strip off the weight and he said the whole camp was just about boiling down he didn't really train very well he had the stomach cramps whether this is true or not people said it was a fabricated story because you know it was just something he needed to put out there because he, I don't think he quite realised the backlash he was going to get. And um, Sugar Ray was masterful in his performance. He really was. He was outstanding. He done exactly what he should have done in the first fight. Kept it at range. Duran, he, he, just, he just got fed up, didn't he? And he said no mess. So, yeah, he said he can't go off. And that was what happened in, in was it the eighth round. And, and everything just went from bad to worse for him. And he became like the Panama hero and went to a complete zero. Nobody liked him. Everybody... Told him he was a quitter, and I think he, the first thing he did was he went to Miami. He's a, he's a little, he quite liked Miami from, from fighting as a lightweight, and he disappeared to Miami, and he stayed there for a good few months, trying to hope for it to all die down, and it, it didn't. Yeah, so he was he was in a bit of a downer, and, and no one wanted to do anything to do with him. Carlos Aleta left him, um, so he didn't know him no money. He had no money. He reckoned he had a million, and he reckoned he sent it all, and, or something like this. So I can't quite remember the ins and outs of it, and... And even uh, Ray Arcel left him. Freddie Brown left him as well. So he was literally left with uh, Palomo and his brother. Um, and that was how he felt. And he was right down in the dumps. And, you know, it's, it's a shame, really, because it is only boxing. You know, someone was to say, I've had enough. I've had enough. That's fine. But, you know, that was frowned upon in 1980. And if you were a guy of his, you know, this, this macho macho, um, unfortunately, you're going to get, it's got a bit of a tab- taboo about it, and, and that's exactly what happened. And it's something that will haunt him forever and throughout his whole career. I feel that personally. I feel that he blew his own heart. Mm-hmm. He hurt his, he hurt himself by um, being uh, not rational with what was taking place. Because the first fight and the second fight was night and day. The first fight was pounding, pounding. Uh, against the ropes, clenching, tying up, head butting, everything else. The second fight was more artistic. Mm-hmm. It was more technical. 
and um, I I was able to use more of my my speed and my my and my my quick feet, my thinking, my ring generalship, that um, proved to be extremely effective with with him. So there was a big controversy or debate about him saying no mas. I didn't particularly hear him say it, but this indicates yeah. no more. I said to man, the fight is over, but what happened to you? He said, listen, nothing happened to me. But you know, you smart, invent something. So I said, well, I saw you touching your stomach. He said, oh yeah, well, you know, I had a little pain, but the, the, he didn't do it. It's just that food that I ate. I said, well, you had cramps. But how Cosell was approaching me for the interview, so Cosell jumped at it right away, and I jumped with the answer right away that was the cramps. But Duran didn't have any cramps. I can tell you that very honestly and sincerely to you and to the world. He just quit, and that was it. Do you really think that's what he meant when he said no more? Do you really think that was quitting? Because he still, to this day, sort of says um, something else. He sort of says what he actually said was no seagull. Uh, I, I, I won't go on. That's what he said. He he said, but there was there was all sorts of different stories from from his family as well about how he wasn't actually quitting the fight. It was more about the fact that he was being embarrassed in the fight more so than it was. I want to quit the fight, and that that's kind of what has come out of his own family. You know, talking about this particular fight, but it's a massive, significant moment in his career because you know he he is remembered for that. He is remembered. Uh, significantly, not just for the amazing career he had, but he's also remembered for that one particular moment where, throughout boxing history, you know, people... You've never seen it. I don't think anyone had ever seen it. I don't think a a fight of that magnitude, you'd ever seen something like that happening. And for me, that that was massive significant i mean there's been documentaries about it there's been all sorts of youtube videos of people trying to give their own take on it and obviously we're talking about it on the podcast so it's, it's such a significant moment in his career and, and led to a little bit of that downward spiral where as you were saying he lost very significant people out of his team before he could move on in his career and go into the next phase of his career and i think this was this was you know this is something where he sort of I've watched various interviews of Duran's over the years, you know, more so this day and age. And I think he sort of, I don't know, I get I get mixed messages from it, to be honest with you, because yeah. I get messages as of him saying, no, I, I never really quit the fight. And then I get messages of it saying, well, well, he was just embarrassed about being completely outboxed and outgunned by Sugar Ray than he did in the second fight. And I don't know. I mean, what, what's your actual personal take on it? You know, I really don't know because, uh, I mean, I, I read the book um, and he, he discussed it and he said he had cramps and he said that that was the problem. That was what, that's what he said in his book. And then I watched the I Am Duran documentary and he sort of started, he didn't say too much and then he sort of said, you know, he mentioned again oh, I had cramps. Um, and then and then I, I see something else and then someone else was saying that it was this, this fabricated story because they wanted to just say something. And then I think it was, and then and he sort of went on in the documentary and he said something, he sort of slipped up in a little way where he didn't say that he had it. He just sort of said he, he didn't say he give up, he just said he had enough, he didn't want to fight me kind of thing. So, again, I'm with you. It's, it's mixed messages. I think that the trouble was, was that he had a month to get himself into shape and he was pissed off. He was pissed off. He was pissed off from the moment that happened. And, you know, in the hands of Stone, they've got that little clip with Don King having a chat with Carlos Aleta and Ray Arcel and Don King saying this fight has to happen. It has to happen. And they're like, 
their hands are tied type of thing. That's how it comes across. And that's how Ray obviously explained his explained his side of the story while Duran's out partying. Now they've been with Duran a long time. They know that Duran goes out and parties and just just the, the weight gain is just incredible because he loves to eat. He doesn't eat in training. He literally he sticks lemons in his mouth to try and you know it, it, it just it, he's one of those guys that if he looks at a bit. If he looks at a cake, he's going to put the weight on. Bless him. That's, <laughs> that is, I think, for Durant. You know, but he, it was difficult. He hated Freddie Brown. Freddie Brown was the worst person. He said he used to have to hide food and he used to get family relatives just smuggling bits, bits of bread just so he could eat because he was literally starving because he just couldn't make the weight otherwise. And and they knew that. And they said, you know, giving him a month because of their game. You know, this, this is this is the point here. Sugar Ray's jumped on it. He knew what he was going to be doing. He done it with Ken Buchanan. He went out partying with all his Panama and friends and wherever else. And and he knew that. And he, he thought, right, if I jump on this now, he's going to be overweight and I can just outbox him. And that's what he did. And to, to his credit, it was clever. If he had had another, another month, they should have just put it off. His team should have said, it ain't happening. He was the champion. You know what I mean? He could have said, no, why did they take the fight? Just because of Don King. Again, that's how it comes across, whether that's true or not. You know, there's a team... Around this one guy, you got to look after your man, and you say to him, "Look, he ain't fighting. He's the champion. He ain't going to lose the title if you don't fight in a month." So, you know, for me, I think it was the team around him. I think they tried to cash in on it, and they made a mistake. And and Duran, I think he was pissed off, and I think he did quit. I think he thought, "I've had enough. I'm not chasing this guy around the ring. I've struggled for a month to try and not eat, and he's probably dying for his steak. But he couldn't have his steak in silence for the fight." You know, I don't know. I, I just think that it was a bit of a. I think your team let him down, and um, and and he got the brunt of it. Yeah, I think it was a combination of both. To be honest with you, I think he was living the life, partying hard. His team wanted a quick, a quick, you know, money money grab, which was what was up being offered at the time. And he just decided, you know, sod it, you know, we'll have to go for it. And he's being put in the position. And again, when you watch the Hands of Stone film, it's portrayed as in the, basically he's been out partying and he gets told at the very last minute he's only got so many so many weeks to sort of shed this weight. And he's like, he ain't going to do it. I ain't going to do it. And then his team are like, look, we've already accepted the fight for you now. You're going to have to do it. Otherwise, you're going to lose X amount of pounds. And it's like, you know, he was put a sort of deforced his hand a lot, it seemed to me. And obviously, he wasn't the same Duran in that fight than he was in the first one. And you know, he put up an effort, but he was just completely outboxed in that fight by a Sugar Ray Leonard who had come back and completely changed his game plan for the second fight. So, for, for Roberto Duran, it was time to take some time off, and he certainly did that. But then, when he came back, he'd put weight on and he decided to move up a weight yet again to, to obviously super welterweight or what was known as the old light middleweight division. Then beating two top 10 contenders in Nino Gonzalez and Luigi Mancillo before getting a shot at the light middleweight title, the WBC light middleweight title against another boxing legend in Wilfred Benitez. Yeah, Wilfred, I, I mean, this was, this was interesting because, I mean, he, again, I I watched the fight and you could see just, it was almost like he wasn't quite strong enough in the fight. I, I believe, again, he mentioned it was a weight problem and that, that was the prison, they had a prison uh, training camp regime that they put him on because uh, just came back and so did Ray ourselves. Freddie Bragg didn't, and they decided to take him into this prison camp somewhere, and that was his training. He was actually training with the inmates, playing softball with them, and then the food that was being cooked for him, he wasn't getting. It was like a, it was just a really weird. He thought he was going to like Miami to train wherever he liked to train in the sun, and he ended up in this prison camp. And he said the prison was all wrong. It was he was he felt good, but he just didn't mentally feel right. And I think. Wilfred Benitez, I mean, we know. I mean, Wilfred Benitez is a fa- he's, he's he's world class. He's 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 a hall of famer, and you know, 
I, I just think he was just too good for him on the night. And I think his time was just a little bit off. And, um, and he, he lost the fight. Give it a good go. That's one thing you always, you know, with, with Duran. Again, I mean, he's fighting now. This at this time, he's fighting at these weights that he probably shouldn't be fighting at because I think lightweight was his weight. I think well, weight he probably could get away with. Um, but then moving up again, I just I don't know. I just think that it, it again, he it, it just proved how good he is in terms of you know he's a fan. He was, you know, he's the best lightweight ever. People voted for that, and I sort of I agree with that. So. For, for a guy to be fight even challenging Benitez is is incredible, really, because Benitez is outstanding. But you know, it was a good fight, it was a decent fight. I just think um, it was just a little bit too far, and it, it just it, it, it couldn't it couldn't deal with Benitez. Benitez was just too too skillful and too sharp for him. Yeah, <laughs> certainly it? was. And then in his next fight, in back to back losses, he lost to Kirkland Land in what is considered one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. Judge Stuart Kirschenbaum scores it. 96 Lang, 94 Duran. Judge Nate McAlpin scores it. 96 Lang, 94 Duran. The winner by a split decision, Kirkland Lang. Lang, the split decision winner. A lot closer than most people thought. Only a split decision for Kirkland Lang. As two judges, Kirschenbaum and uh, McAlpin, had it 96-94 for Lang. While Humphrey had Duran winning 96-95. At any rate, Kirkland Lang with a split decision over Roberto Duran for Lang, obviously, the uh, biggest victory of his career. That is certainly one that, you know, I'd be interested in discussing for for a, a, a different episode about, you know, biggest upsets in boxing history. And this was certainly regarded as one of them. When you talk about you know, sort of threads of, of, of Twitter where you talk about, oh, what was the biggest upset? And a lot of people do come back with this particular one where he lost to Kirkland Lamb because nobody seemingly thought he was going to go in there against somebody who'd not really had, had stepped up and been in with the same calibre of opponent. But he was a very talented guy. He was uh, Kirkland Land, to his credit, obviously a British guy. He'd actually, you know, had all this talent behind him but was someone who never really got to the sort of upper echelons of, of, of boxing where you kind of, you could see all the talent there, but you just couldn't see him sort of exercise that talent in, in the same way as we've seen some of the British fighters over the years do as well. But this was massive. This was a massive victory for Kirtland Landon, a very, very shocking defeat for Roberto Duran. Oh, massively. And, and funny enough, he was actually supposed to fight Tony Ayala Jr. And uh, I did actually write a little... Uh, my uh, uh, criminals in boxing. Um, if, any, <laughs> if, you, if you want to check, check it out, I'm just plugging myself for this song now. <laughs> but Tony Ayala was a horrible, horrible bastard, and uh, he was supposed to fight him before Curtin Lang. But in the end, Curtin Lang came in and 
And as you say, brilliant, fantastic performance from Curtin. And and Durant says his time was off, and it was, it was the weight issue again. And and he said he felt like it was after no match again. No one wanted him after the Curtin lane. Don King came into the dressing room, told him he's had enough of him. He's out on the piss all the time, and I'm done with you. So he left him. Um, so Don King weren't involved. Uh, Carlos Saletta left him again. He left him this time with a house, um, uh, an apartment, and a million dollars. Um, that is all he left him. And um, yeah, I, I believe Arthur was still around, so he still had him. Um, but yeah, other than that, it weren't. Again, he just went in the dumps again, and it looked like this is it. And everybody said that this is it. This is the end of Duran, and he should call it a day. And that weren't the case. No, this certainly wasn't because only a year later would he then win a world title at Super Welterweight at like middleweight, beating 12-0 and Davey Moore for the WBA World Super Welterweight title stopping him emphatically and getting that victory after a game Davey Moore came in there. I mean inexperience is obviously the first thing that comes to mind and, and and overmatched really, although obviously Davey Moore was the guy that had actually held the, 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 the title at the time, it was it just seems like a bad case of sort of matching at this point in time, to be <laughs> honest with you. But you know, to to his credit, he give a he give a good shout for the first four or five rounds of that particular fight. One you should go back and watch, but it was the return to form for me for Roberto Duran after seemingly looking like it was the end of his career a year earlier. And at this point in time as well, you've got to remember he's actually thirty two years of age at this point in time. So he's actually coming what you would think to towards the end of his career at this point when he fought Davey Moore. But, you know, he wins another world title at another weight. Yeah, and uh, it, this was this was a big fight for him because uh, Bob Arum actually said to him, you win this fight against Davey Moore and I'll give you the Hagler fight. So, give him the incentive. He said, to be honest, he didn't even think about Davey Moore and then it wasn't until sort of um, when Aram said, like, you know, he's got a title and if you beat him, you get Hagler. He's like, yeah, I'll take that because he knows he's got a big payday ahead of him. So, you know, he, he, he came back as Palomar's hero again. Roberto Duran, after the Nomas fight, became a pariah. He was despised by most of his countrymen, but darn when he beat Davey Moore to win the junior middleweight title, and he came back to Panama on that private plane that the president sent him. And that crowd at the airport greeted him, where there were more people than come out to watch the Pope. Amends were made, and Duran went back into the annals of Panamanians as their greatest hero. It was a just destructive finish. Again, that's on YouTube. I mean, many of the I think not all of them, but I'd say a massive sort of about seventy percent of his fights are on there in full. So, you know, this is a cracking fight, and this was an, it's just a signature of. Just how great Duran was at 32 years of age on his birthday, and he goes and beats a young buck in David Moore, and he he knocks him out beautifully. And he said his training this time went really well. So <laughs> I'm not surprised if you knock someone out, he tends to say the training went really well. But uh, yeah, so and then he moved on to to, to obviously. Uh, Marvellous Marvin. Well, we spoke about this particular fight on the career profile of Marvin Hagler, funnily enough. And if you've not checked that one out, please go and check it out. That's also on the feed as well. Brilliant insight into the career of Marvellous Marvin. But this is Roberto Duran's career profile. And we've talked about how significant of, of a fight this was I think for Roberto Duran because marvellous Marvin Hagler at this point in time you know as we spoke about on that episode is an absolute beast uh, and a guy you would have absolutely 
expected to have stopped Roberto Duran in this fight, but didn't. Surprisingly, this went all the way. It was a very, very, very good fight. And I think, you know, the fact that he'd moved up to middleweight Duran, again, to a fourth weight, was, was unbelievable to think that he'd obviously started his career way down in the 118 pounds division, which, <laughs> what, you know, it's, it's just it's just unbelievable to think that at this point in time, he'd actually gone to the middleweight division in 1983. And seemingly, you would expect Roberto Duran to have been knocked out in this particular fight but actually he went the distance with Marvin Hagler and I, and I think that was a fantastic achievement alone you know not only was he trying to become a an undisputed champion of the of the middleweight division he was also going in against a guy who was very feared at this point in his career a guy that was obviously absolutely an animal he was knocking out all of his opponents he was in there with some of the best opponents you could put him in there with and then he goes in and Roberto Duran holds his own all the way through the fight in what was a fantastic fight and one you should definitely go and check out on YouTube but it was a it was another loss on his record again and it was another what people may say is a little bit of a step too far for Roberto Duran going up all them weights and then and then losing to, to, to obviously Marvin Hagler but it was funny because then he makes the decision to step down back to the super welterweight division and goes in against Tommy Hearns and that was a completely different night He's wobbly. Tommy hits him with another right. This is another right. I think this fight is very close to being over. A left hand. Durant fights off the ropes. Oh, he's out. He's out. He's out. He was out before he hit the canvas. A minute 58. That's Turn it. Stop the right fight. Hand. Stop the fight. It's over. Carlos Padilla out before he hit the canvas. Oh, my goodness me, was it? Um... I still believe that Thomas Hearns at 154 um, is just a different animal. I think, you know, the one thing with Duran, I mean, obviously, he's a part of the fan. This is like the second part of his career. He's the Fantastic Four now, and he's, he's, fight, he's fought Leonard, he's fought Hagler, and it just sort of made sense, I suppose, to fight Hearns. But oh, it was a brutal, brutal knockout that second round. I mean, I've never seen <laughs> literally... I mean, that shot when he ends up face down at the end is pretty... You know, you're sort of thinking to yourself, wow, like, you just don't expect to see Duran sort of on the floor like that, and, and it was savage. Um, I think I think people had, when I was sort of watching the fight um, and the previews before it, people had Duran even winning in the first round and Hearn winning in the second. That was really weird how the, how the bookies had it. They knew it was going to be ended very quickly because um, just the way they both approach fights and, yeah... Brutal, brutal knockout by Hearns and um, the, the most savage defeat for, on Durant's record for me. And I probably had no right even stepping into the ring to even take on Tommy Hearns. And, you know, that knockout explains itself by the fact that, you know, that happened in June 15, 1984. His next fight wasn't until the January 31st, 1986. So, you know, he spent a whole year out of the ring. And um, I think that's probably because he, he had to really think again about who he's fighting next because um, stepping in there with Hearns was, was probably a bit of a bad, bad mistake. Um, yeah. He did carry on though. He did carry on and, and he moved on uh, in back into 1986, as I said, after, after, after skipping a year out of the ring. You know, what you find at this point in time is when you look back on his record and you look at the where he was in his career after losing to Hearns, you would have thought that would have been the end for him. Certainly going out in that fashion against Tommy Hearns, you're thinking to yourself... 
maybe tell him to retire now at this point. You know, I think this yeah. is he's thirty three. What thirty three year old at this point? Thirty two, thirty three year old, and he's just got a bit of a crushing loss there to to Tommy Hearns. But yeah, he decides to come back. Uh, but it would be a few years before he would get back into any sort of title contention. So he had three fights throughout 1986, losing to Robbie Sims via a split decision in one of them. He had two fights in 1987, picking up unanimous decisions, both victories. And then he had three fights in 1988, again picking up three victories while he was there as well, before moving into 1989 and going in against Iran Barkley for the WBC middleweight title of the world. So bearing in mind he'd become a three-weight world champion, he goes in and beats Iron Barkley via a split decision in what was a brilliant fight in fact, and definitely one you should go and check out on YouTube for the listeners, and goes in and beats him and wins the WBC middleweight title. Yeah, it was it was the 1989 Ring Magazine Fight of the Year. He ran Barkley. If no one knows, he was a he was a tough tough fella. He ran Barkley. Um, I think he was, in the, was I think he was the streets of um, uh, in in New York. Um, oh God, I can't remember off the off the top. Yeah, but he come through a bit of a difficult upbringing himself, and and he ran Barkley was a bit of a beast as well. When he when he wanted to, he could be on his game. And um, this is just a brilliant fight. It really was. Size difference was just funny. I mean, I thought it was a bit silly, really, when I first see it. But um, you know, Duran held his own, and like he does, you know, apart from the Hearns fight, there's not really anyone else you can say he actually got actually smashed ever. Um, and and in the end, he gets the victory against Iran Barkley and becomes a four weight world champion, WBC middleweight, a legitimate title as well. And many actually feared for Duran's life. I, I believe his wife. She didn't want anything to do with it. She sort of said, no, I can't watch this sort of thing. I think she's doing quite a lot, though. She would shout to some of the nights and then just disappear into the change rooms and sort of put her earplugs in or something and just wait to find out if he, what, what sort of state he appeared in the ring. But, um, yeah, he, again, it was another night. It was a massive night for Duran. And, 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 again, it just shows you that, you know, this guy, you know, as you say, he was 118 pounds fighting his first ever fight as an amateur, as a pro, sorry, and, and to now be fighting at 156 pounds against Iran Barkley, who was, by the way, you know, he was a big middleweight Barkley as well. He could quite easily win that of it. And um, yeah, it was just a great, great fight, excellent fight, and one I definitely recommend anyone to go back and watch. Just around this period of time as well, I think it was around 1988, 89, where you can actually find some really interesting footage of Roberto Duran and Nigel Ben sparring on YouTube as well. And it's something, while I was doing the research for this episode, actually I, I stumbled across and I'd never seen before. And it's just quite crazy to think that they shared the ring sparring. I mean, I don't know if not a lot of people know that, but Duran... Nigel Ben, you know, two different people from two different parts of the world, you know, two different careers of their own, and it was actually sharing the ring together, inspiring, and I never knew that, and I just thought I'd, I'd bring it up because I thought it was, a, a, you know, a really interesting fact, and, you know, for anybody who's got, you know, the time to go and have a quick look, you should go and have a look on YouTube and have a look at that little bit of a sparring session that was captured on film because it, uh, it was quite a strange strange watch for me, personally, watching back on that. I'm, I'm sure it would have been different for people back in, in the late 80s, but for me, I was just looking back, you know, all these years later, 30 years later, and thinking, wow, I'd, I'd never seen this before, and I was, you know, quite quite compelled by it. But for, for Roberto mm-hmm. Duran, again, you'd think his career was over at this point, you know, you'd think... Would he retire on, on on top, winning that, that 
fourth weight world title, becoming the middleweight champion, been welterweight champion, been lightweight champion, light middleweight champion. You know, you'd think that was everything for him, but no, not not Roberto Duran. There was a third fight on the horizon, another trilogy throughout his career. It was with Sugar Ray Leonard in 1989, and he was trying to make absolute history at this point by trying to become a five-weight world champion against Sugar Ray Leonard. The last time he gave up, this time he won't get the chance. When two legends come together. Le gané una vez y le voy a ganar de nuevo. From different worlds. This time you better come to fight. Talk is cheap. Le voy a mandar a la lona para siempre. When the bell sounds December 7th, the truth will be told and actions will speak louder than words. Uno Mas, the deciding battle between Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran at the Mirage, Las Vegas. Yeah, it was billed uh, Uno Mas. I believe uh, Sugar Ray. It wasn't a good fight. I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there now. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone to go back and have a look at it. I mean, it was the third one is a trilogy, um, but both were overly all by this point, and it was a comfortable victory for Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it was just a, a bit of a money earner for the pair of them, I suppose. Um, there's the one significant thing that happened in '89 was obviously that that was when Esteban Jesus passed away. So. You know that that was the, with a famous picture of Jesus and um, and Duran, but you know the fight itself, as I say, at the Mirage in in Nevada, it wasn't a brilliant fight. And obviously, he then went on to to fight uh, Pat Lawler after that as well. Um, I, I believe he was stripped of his WBC middleweight title as well for not defending it, um, and then he ended up fighting Pat Lawler, and he lost that uh, against the guy fought in and won Pat Lawler. You know, he wasn't, you know, he was a good fight. I don't get me wrong, I'm not going to knock the fella, but um, he wasn't the best. Um, he got, he ended up stopping Duran in six. And, um, yeah, he did, I mean, again, I'm with you. I think, I think you should have stopped before even getting to the point of Iran Barkley. But for me, I think this was the moment where I think, you know, he won that middleweight title, fight of the year, beats a younger, younger fighter in Barkley. I think he should have given up at that point. Obviously, the money and the, the draw of Lennon's third fight, obviously, made him to come back. Maybe maybe the Leonard fight and then call it a day, but I don't quite understand why he carried on from this point, so to be honest with you. No, this is where you get into sort of... I, I don't want to be, like, horrible about it, but I think this is the sort of insignificant part of his career. I think by, by this point, by losing to Ray Leonard and losing that opportunity to become a five-weight world champion, you'd honestly think that was the end of his career. At this point, he's 38 years, he's 38 years old at this point. And this is 1989. And then after this, he loses to Pat Lawler. And then, yeah, he actually goes on a, a little run throughout the early 90s, picking up victories, you know, over, over opponents that probably he would have, you know, emphatically stopped earlier on in his career, of course, but then ends up going in to 1994-95 and going in there against Vinny Pazienza, which I wouldn't say were significant fights for Duran in his career, more so for Pazienza uh, and, and obviously the story of his career, of course. But the fact that he was still carrying on at this point was, was for me, was quite sort of sad to look back on because at this point in time, he's like 43 years of age you know 94 95 and he's still fighting and then going in there losing to Pazienza twice and then going in there with Hector Macho Camacho in 96 and then obviously Jorge Castro he won and lost against Jorge Castro in in 1997 Uh, and then would you believe he actually fought one more time for a world title in 1998 against William Joppy for the WBA middleweight title I, I found that absolutely crazy to even think that 
the governing body would actually sanction that bout for a guy that was, at the time, 47 years of age against a guy who was 20 years his junior. Oh, that was, for me, that that is just one of them fights again. I, I, it's sad to watch because you're just not the Duran. You're not watching Duran in there. Um, William Joppy, I mean, he's a good fighter. Don't get me wrong, another good fighter. But, you know, he wasn't going to... The guy, he doesn't even come close to like a Duran. And this is clearly a, a money thing uh, for me. Um, and the fact that, you know, like they're sanctioning it, I don't, I don't quite get it. I mean, it was Duran's last hurrah, he's called it. Um, and, and, you know, it's... It just looks really bad. Um, it was an awful fight from from Duran. He was just, I mean, he said again his weight issues and blah blah blah. But he should have just just call it a day from this point. It was just getting a bit silly, sort of beating average fellas and, and losing to average fellas really uh, after Jorge Castro. William Jockey, William Jockey is a better than average fighter. Don't get me wrong, but you know, let's be honest here. You know, you're talking if you're talking Pete Duran, completely different weight. You shouldn't even be fighting at that weight. He's only fighting at that weight because he's struggling with it. And that's his biggest problem all his life. And he just wanted to earn the money. I mean, he even said after the joppy fight, I'm done, I'm finished, this is it. And, you know, unfortunately, he still kept going. You know, <laughs> he fought on again and he, and he fought on the fight. Was it Patrick Coulson and then Hector? Or Pat, he fought Pat Lawler again, didn't he? After yeah. losing to Gonzalez. Um, beat Pat Lawler. Um, and then for, for it was a title actually it was an NPA super middleweight one of them stupid titles wasn't it weren't a legitimate one um, and then um, Patrick Goosen and then obviously Hector Camacho again his first, last ever fight in 2001 well 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 past his best um, but you know to his credit he fought one at the end of the day he, he actually did give these guys you know he took them a distance most of the time um, and you know, it shows you just how good he is, I suppose, even at his old foul age and he's still fighting on, probably mashed up his hands and uh, still, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, you listen to him now, he's still in the, you know, he seems to be quite savvy, so he's not that messed up from it, but um don't know, it, it was just a bit dark for me, I think he should have called it a day five, six years before he did. Well, let's put it into perspective for you then. So, at the the time, we was talking about the Sugar Ray Leonard third fight. He was 38 when he fought Sugar Ray Leonard. He retired in 2001 officially at the age of 50. Jesus. Well, and that was because of a car accident and all, wasn't it? Yeah, so there you go. So that kind of puts it into perspective for you that he did have a long, long career, but I'd say the final segment of his career wasn't the Duran that we all know and love. It wasn't the guy that was the the lightweight king or the guy that was voted as the best lightweight of all time in the poll, which has led us to doing this episode. And putting it into perspective about his career, you know, not ending it negatively because of that last segment of his career. In 2002, Duran was actually voted by the Ring magazine as the fifth greatest fighter of the last 80 years. Well, late historian Bert Sugar rated him as the eighth greatest fighter of all time. He's actually been voted for by various different press outlets as the best lightweight of the 20th century with a lot of them considering him the best lightweight of all time so you know we're going back to 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 what actually got us into this episode with him and his career profile was the lightweight division the lightweight division was where he ruled the roost the lightweight division was where he had his most sort of significant fights where he was well known for for what he achieved in the sport where he where he earned 
you know, a lot of credit and a lot of praise for what he achieved in the lightweight division. But some of the big marquee names didn't really come until he moved up through the ways when he went to welterweight and fought Sugar Ray and, and obviously when he went up to middleweight and fought Hagler and then super middleweight. They were all the big marquee fights. But as you if you if you're measuring him up as a lightweight alone, you know, I think any lightweight out there, past or present, you know, he'd certainly, certainly go all the way with him. You know, even if he ended up losing on points, he'd certainly go all the way with him. There's no there's no way he wouldn't be standing at the end, you know, or not standing at the end of a fight when when he was in the lightweight division. And we talk about the Benny Leonards, you talk about the Joe Gans, and then you talk about the modern day lightweights that we're seeing in this generation, your Vasily Lomachenkos, you know, these types of fighters that we've got at the moment, you would have loved to have seen them types of fight in the lightweight division. But for me, you know, the the the, the listeners and the users of, of Twitter were right in voting him because he is a guy over the course of the past 50, 60, you know, sort of 50 years, sorry, that has actually gone through a career uh, of that magnitude going for all them weights. And, and I think you've rightly pointed this out before, Johnston, that he's only the second ever fighter to complete a career of over five different decades. Yep, yep, the only other fighter being Jack Johnson, which which says something. I mean, I mean, we're, everybody knows Jack Johnson is, um, you know, an absolute legend in his own right. And, and Duran is, he will always be. I mean, you know, just the point when he got into, when he got to fight that first fight against Sugar Ray, you know, and, you know, what is he, 70 odd fights, 70 odd wins and just the one defeat. I mean, it, it's just that, that alone from what he did at Lightweight. I mean, from 1972 to 1979, Duran, when he held the world lightweight title, he defended it 12 times and knocked out 11 of them, twice against Esteban Jesus, um, and the first uh, being in Panama City, um, you know, and then in, in the second one, which was in, uh, in obviously in Vegas, which was a big fight in '78. Um, obviously, as we've mentioned, it was just a, a, a trilogy that sort of just goes under the radar a little bit. But Duran has a lightweight, you know. When, there's so much, in, you know, you can watch all these fights on YouTube. You've got information, you can read about it, you can can listen to it whether it be on a podcast or or even Duran's book or whatever you know it, they, they you go through how many you know some of these fighters he fought at lightweight some big names in there you know and you know to defend your title you know that many times and and even not every single fight was a was a title fight with Duran he just continually he just wanted to fight he was just one of those guys that and, and when he was in the ring I mean I don't think there's anybody better anybody better on on the inside than, than Roberto Duran for me. When he was at lightweight, even when he obviously, in the peak of his game when he fought Leonard in, in uh, Montreal, um, he was just unbelievable. The way he could faint, he would dummy, he would switch his feet and he'd get it on the inside and he'd throw an uppercut and he, it was just, it was just, a, it was something that he couldn't be taught and he already had it and even Ray Arcel said that he, he already had this ability it was just a matter of nurturing it a little bit to the point where he's just a little bit more clued up in what he's doing with himself. But natural ability beyond, you know, absolutely. And he was just an absolute pleasure to watch and, and an absolute legend, a real, real legend of the sport. And and definitely for me, the, the best lightweight. But as you say, could you imagine a fantasy fight, Roberto Duran, Hamanchenko? I still feel, I think Duran gets him. <laughs> Wow, I tell you, you know, there's there's so many sort of fantasy matchups we could talk about 
for the lightweight division. And, and and even as a welterweight, obviously, he was a very worthy welterweight. Of course, he beat, obviously, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, in 1980. That was a very significant win for him, moving up to the, to the welterweight division. But people voted for this particular career profile based on the achievements of, of him being lightweight. And obviously, the only other man that came close to, 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 to being in that poll against him was the late, great Pernell Whitaker. So, you know, the, the, there's, there's another yeah. guy there whose career spanned over a good period of time who won uh, weights in, 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 well, titles in four different weights, of course. And, you know, he's another one that we can talk about. But that that alone, that particular poll, fantasy fight there, Pernell Whitaker versus Roberto Duran in the lightweight division, oh, you know that that's it's, it's one of them ones Brilliant. that just gets you sort of really thinking about who would actually go on and win it. But you know, I was really sort of pleased to sort of see the competitiveness of of these particular polls that we put out, really. And and obviously, you know, not just the fact that it was just all Duran; it was you know quite competitive between Whitaker and Duran at the end. But I was really pleased to be able to get the opportunity to sit back down and go through Duran's career, uh, watch the documentaries, read some of the ex- extracts from his book, and and obviously some of the stories about Roberto Duran's life and his career and what he did, and obviously the political side and how close he was, you know, to the the government figures in Panama and it was just he he wasn't just an amazing fighter in his peak he was also a guy that I think you would have loved to have had as your friend and would have loved to have gone to his (laughs) parties as well at the same time (laughs) definitely and uh, he he did love the you know he he come from a a difficult upbringing I mean he had he did have a really he struggled basically and and he, he sort of you know, as I say, he was new money, wasn't he? He was giving all this money, and he was sitting around. He was meeting all these famous people, and you know, he had. You know, he's always he's got stories of meeting. You know, if anyone wants to read his book, you know, there's so much information in there about his meetings with Ali and uh, Frank Sinatra and all sorts. You know, is the name dropping is ridiculous. <laughs> it really is, and uh, you know, even from the point when he when he beat Ken Buchanan, which is that we didn't mention, was. When he came back to that huge parade in Panama City, the white suit he came out with was white hat. That was a thousand dollar suit or something that, that the the president at the time had given him, had bought him to wear for when he came back for his victory parade. And um, he was given the suite, the, the whole suite. Apparently, he left him and his wife, uh, Felicia. I'm sure it's Felicia if I remember her name rightly. Um, and they had the whole palace to themselves or whatever it was, big massive massive mansion after beating uh, Ken Buchanan. So, I mean, he, he definitely lived a great life, didn't he, Duran? And as you say, I would love to have been out for a few drinks with Duran because I think you, would have, you wouldn't have had to put your hand in your pocket once, would you? Um, and I think, <laughs> I believe he's still, he's still like that today. You see the footage of him out sort of just having a chat and a drink with some random guys just in the area he was brought up in um, and helping people that are struggling in life, which is great to see. You know, he, I think he did I'm not sure if he still is today. I think he'd done something political. Obviously, he didn't run the country, but there was something he was involved in. But, look, Roberto Duran is a legend. He's one, you know, he's had one of the longest careers in boxing history. You know, during 33 years in the ring, he fought 119 times, won 103 contests. And um, in 27 bouts, world championship bouts, in 29 years. So, um, you know... Incredible career, and, and it's just been a pleasure to, to go back and watch all this stuff from Roberto Duran, and rightly, the best lightweight, and as you say, one of the best welterweights as well. 
It certainly was really, really good to sit down and go through his career and break down some of the more significant moments of his career. And as I said earlier on in the episode, if you've not caught the tale of Duran versus Leonard, the brawl in Montreal, that episode is available on the feed. If you've subscribed to us, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, Spotify as well. You can find us everywhere across any good available podcasting app. Get subscribing, rating and reviewing. Let us know what you thought thoughts are on this career profile episode go and find some of the other career profile episodes with marvin Hagler, mike tyson muhammad ali and michael spinks and obviously tune into the legendary night series of course as well so if you've not already followed us on social media you can do so by checking us out at btr boxing pod on twitter and btr boxing podcast on facebook as well and if you've got any questions you want to send in to us we have actually got an email address it is beyond the ropes boxing podcast at gmail.com you can can send an email over to there if there's anything you would like to send over any particular topics you would like us to cover please drop us an email or a dm on twitter we're more than open to having conversations about future episodes but we really really hope you've enjoyed this career profile of the greatest lightweight of all time in boxing mr roberto Duran. he told me once i like to be like robin hood if i have money I will give the poor people all the money. And he did. And he did. He fought his way out of the slums of Panama, and he made himself a king. I went out to the swimming pool, and there was about 60 people all sitting there, eating steaks, drinking Dom Perignon champagne. He was living a poor boy's fantasy, but his success would trigger his downfall. As you become affluent, and everybody is always putting a dish before you or inviting you to dinner, you know. How can you do anything else but get a little bit, a little bit plump? Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.